This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Kashmir and moved to the UK of her parents. She graduated from Birmingham City University in government and politics before getting a master's from Leeds University in international relations. After working in the charity sector and then moving to BBC's World Service, she transitioned to politics, coming out on top in a competitive primary in Wealdon. In 2015, she became this constituency's first female MP. In Parliament, she has sat on both the Home and Foreign Affairs Committees, been a Minister at the Department for Transport, worked as an Assistant Whip. In 2018, she was the first female Muslim Minister to speak from the Commons Dispatch Box. Recently, she has been one of the loudest voices in British politics to condemn human rights violations in China. This led to her being one of nine UK citizens to be sanctioned by China. She now can't visit the country, and Chinese businesses are forbidden from working with her. On the news, she said... I know I won't be intimidated. This has now made me feel even more determined to speak about the Uyghur. My guest today is a Conservative MP, Nusgani. So thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you finding the time, particularly I think it must be a very busy few days for you after that announcement from the Chinese government that I mentioned. But before we get to that, what we like to do in this podcast is rewind the hands of time and start a bit at the beginning. And the question we tend to ask everyone is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? As I mentioned in the introduction, you were born in Kashmir. Yes, I, I, I suppose so. I think, um, I don't know what I would compare it to at the time. It was, a, I suspect it was probably was very busy. So my, when my parents came over here, I came with them um, as a baby. And my parents were living in social housing and a number of other relatives came over. And my mum had to take care of a lot of people I think there must have been a dozen of us in a, a three-bedroom house with an outdoor bath so I suspect it was just very very um, busy it was very simple and eventually we were given our own council house so just our family as a unit which I think mum was so pleased about because then she spent most of her time cooking and cleaning for, for dozens of men who were coming to the country and trying to settle down relatives of course but maybe she could just focus on her own family but yeah, but it, I suspect it was a tough, tough childhood. We were, you know, brought up in quite a tough neighbourhood, Small Heath in Birmingham. It's where Peaky Blinders are filmed. So, <laughs> and lots of other curious things. You know, it's a tough neighbourhood. I, I know that um, on, on the street that we grew up on, there was just a lot of crime. It wasn't easy. It wasn't what my parents expected when they came over here. And your father was a, was a schoolmaster back in the day. So did you have a particularly strict upbringing? incredibly strict Katie I think if I shared to you how strict it was people might think it was borderline abusive but it was a very strict upbringing (laughs) so I think as I mentioned it was a very tough neighborhood and my father was a head teacher and he was keen to continue working but I think it was incredibly difficult in the 60s and 70s to be able to do what he wanted to do and he ended up I think I said this in my first speech in the house he had to give up his headmaster's cloak for a factory overalls, but he had to do that because he was trying his best to, to settle his family in. So we, as, as well as going to school, we had quite intense um, Arabic classes and quite intense Urdu classes. So weekends and evenings were spent studying. And as soon as I was able to conquer, you know, be good enough to do, to have English, 
Um, then we had a lot of people coming into the home that needed letters translating, needed forms to be filled in, women who wanted to learn English, women who wanted to learn Urdu, women who wanted to learn Arabic. So we always had lots and lots of people, lots of informal lessons taking place. And um, Katie, I probably wanted to go and play, but we were just had to then help out the rest of the community. So it was strict in the sense that it was regimented when it came to studying. It never stopped. <laughs> so your father remained a schoolmaster in the house, at least. Yeah, he, yes, exactly. You're absolutely right. Now, uh, did politics ever come up? I mean, we're going to talk about your political career, but I wondered in terms of the family, was it something that was discussed much or...? It was never discussed. It was never um, at all discussed. I keep being asked this, what, what triggered the interest in politics? It definitely wasn't being at home as a child. And I think like most households who have no interaction with parliamentarians or that Westminster world, there was never a discussion about it. And any interaction we had with politicians was would have been at local council level. And I, like most people in the country, it was very rare and it wasn't always very positive. But my interaction with local politicians... In, in small heath, it is a strong Labour stronghold, which was, you know, everyone should know their place, everyone should stay in their lane, don't ask for too much, and your future is based on your present circumstances. And obviously, Katie, our present circumstances were, were pretty tough. There was very little aspiration allowed. This is your situation, you'll continue into social housing, you may or may not work, you'll be married eventually, just don't, don't go for too much too soon, know your place, which I struggled with. I thought we're, we're in the United Kingdom, We've left so much behind in Kashmir. Why would we continue to perpetuate, especially for women, what our what our role is? So maybe there was a little bit of pushback internally. But we had Betty Boothroyd on telly, remember, because she was Speaker, and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, on telly. And even though my mum couldn't understand English, she was she always got very pleased when they were on TV, and, you know. She obviously saw the women of power and they were putting other men... She was put, They were putting men in their place, so... My mum very much enjoyed watching that TV. And even though, I know it's hard for people to understand, we were a migrant working class family growing up in Birmingham. There was a huge amount of respect for Margaret Thatcher because eventually she enabled us to buy our council house. So, you know, and people people sort of think, well, how could you be conservative? Well, it started there, actually. It was giving my parent that, that level of security and that buy-in to this country that started it all off. But no, politics was never discussed at home. It, it was incredibly hard for me to get an education. And we have a joke now at home that you go and get your daughter educated and she turns out to be a Tory MP. Like, I mean, this wasn't the best outcome they were expecting. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we laugh about it now. But there were times, Katie, when we didn't. So. Yeah, because I, I was going to say on that, I mean, you previously said I was expected to marry young and live in social housing. And you were the first woman in your family to go to university, but... It sounds that as though the bit before even getting to that university point was was a struggle too. I know that for many colleagues and for many people I come across, going to university was a big step for their family. And it was a big step for mine. But it's I just think, well, actually, I was expected to leave school at 14. I was expected to be married to a cousin. I had no knowledge of anybody in my community that had gone to college or gone to university. And it just sounded crazy to even think about it, Katie, that I could have any qualifications or even dream of going to university. It was never in my imagination as a teenager. I didn't think it was in my grasp. So when people say, well, I was, you know, I had aspirations to go to X, Y and Z. Well, I just had aspirations to be able to sit my GCSEs because I kept being told 
it's not normal, it's not what we do, it's not going it's not going to help you getting married and you need to be settled down. So there was huge pressure for me not to finish my schooling, but I knew that I was legally allowed to be in school up to 16. And that gave me the strength to, to leave my home and to go to school, you know, continue studying. And I did sit my GCSEs and I did, I did okay. And then I wanted to go to college. But this just created a huge drama. And it wasn't just that my parents struggled, it was the pressure they were put under by other community elders saying, well, if she goes to college, then our daughters are going to want to go to college and the whole thing unravels. So it was the intim- not the intimidation, but it was just, you know, you, they were put under huge pressure not to allow me to go. But I just kept waking up and going. I never thought I would be able to finish a term, let alone two years. So it's, it's extraordinary now to look back and work out how I managed it all. But, but I did. I also, by going to college for two years, I knew I was delaying um, the pressure on me being married and that I had another two years respite. And all I was trying to do in my mind was just to do have enough qualifications to be economically independent because all the women that I had contact with were reliant on the men in their family for money. And that limited your choices and your scope. But so it's it I just wanted to get qualifications, I wanted to be able to get a job, and I thought that might me give me enough space to make a different decision. But it it was incredibly hard. The community has moved so much from when I was growing up, but I remember incidences where sort of cousins in, drive up to me on my way to school on the way back and basically, you know, make it just be very threatening if I continued to do it. Just to get an education, Katie, as a young teen in this country. But um, I, I, I hope that that doesn't happen to many girls now in the United Kingdom. Um, but I, I keep coming across situations where it's still tough, but I hope that many more girls are able to, to do what's legally allowed they're able to go to school go to college go to university do what they need to do to get ahead did you have teachers who were supportive in that period were aware of the pressures you were on or were you really quite alone there I've never told them I've, you know, it's too much to explain I mean who why would you you know how would they comprehend and also I was incredibly bubbly at school the way I am now I was I was always doing stuff the way I do now as an MP so I was always trying to change the world or change the school it never stopped so I don't think it would have dawned on them what was what was going on? But look, it, it, I don't think this, it would have been a huge shock. But lots because lots of girls in the school would disappear, you know, over the summer terms and come back married. So nothing was ever done. But this is the whole thing, Katie. It was just there was this whole uh, silent agreement that we weren't going to amount to much. So what did it matter? Now I want to talk obviously about your career. But I just want the last thing on that. You you've mentioned obviously this prospect of being expected to marry young. You know, marry your cousin and so forth was there a situation where you were very close to having to do that or the fact you were going to school did that kind of mean that you could escape that we, we had lots of comedy sketch scenarios Katie where interested young gentlemen and their parents came to my home and um, gosh I haven't talked about this because I'm not sure how it works in a broader audience if you're not from an Asian family but in my community I was seen as quite dark and I was very skinny, so I probably wasn't seen as very childbearing either. So often we'd have interested young men and their parents come and the criticism would be, she's too cocky, she, she, isn't, she isn't showing enough deference. <laughs> and she's a bit dark and a bit thin, but, you know, she didn't lower her gaze enough at the tea ceremony or something, which I would always cock up just to spite my parents and whoever was coming so I don't think I was I was playing the game very well 
I kept, unfortunately, I kept putting them off. I, gosh, I did some terrible things. I remember dropping tea in the laps of prospective men coming over just because I didn't want to be making them tea in the first place, let alone trying to have a, a submissive conversation about what kind of wife I would be at 15. <laughs> I laugh about it now, Katie, but at the time it was, it, it was, it was quite painful. But looking back now, I, uh, I've been married now for quite some time. And it was incredibly difficult for my for my family to accept David as my husband because he isn't Asian and he isn't Muslim. But it's, you know, it's it's those, one of those curious things I had to go through. I had no negative feeling towards my family. It was just the way that it was done. I was trying to work out how I could do it differently without being separate from my family. So you go on to study at Birmingham City University. At what point, is that the point you managed to move out of the family home or? No, no, I, I had an opportunity to study away from home, but that, that wasn't going to happen. So I got a last minute course because I had to come home. I wasn't allowed to study away from home. You know, so I was at Birmingham and I was at home and then I managed to get to get to Leeds. And that's when I left home to go to Leeds. And then I knew then that I just had to make everything work that to, to prove that to my parents did the right thing by allowing me to have my education, that I couldn't fail. I, I just had to keep going. I had to find work, you know, find accommodation afterwards, do what, has, what everyone else has to do. But I could never go back and ask for help because that would have proved that this, this doesn't work. And by then, I had a younger sister behind me, Katie, and I needed her to be able to have the experiences that were denied me and also the experiences that we were then both going to go on to enjoy. So failure wasn't an option. We just had to keep going forward. And so we just kept and decades later, I'm here speaking to you. Often on this podcast, we talk about, you know, uh, people's social lives at university, what they got up to, coming of age experiences. But I wonder in your case, what was life like at Leeds? Was it, you know, um, parties galore or actually you just trying to keep everything together for the reasons that you just explained? Well, I loved being at Leeds. I wanted to do and explore everything that I hadn't had the opportunity to explore before. But I knew for a master's it was a one-year course. So I had to study at the same time. But I think I joined every society going. So I think I joined at everything. Like things that I had, you know, like no experience or, or anything. But I just felt I had to just try it. So... Gosh, what did I like? Squash. I think I went once. I don't know what that was about, but I did, I did some alternative drama course. We had to pretend to be, I don't know, really. Just I did everything just because I wanted to taste it all. But I studied really hard. I just knew that I I couldn't I couldn't then come back home and say I failed and I had to then find work afterwards. But I I was incredibly lucky. We I I was with a really good crowd. I was doing an an international relations masters focusing on Iran at the time. So it was it was both intellectually stimulating and socially I had a, an incredibly, incredibly positive experience. Now you graduate, you have two two degrees, you've got your masters and you begin by I think a brief array into banking and quickly it seems uh, work out is not for you. Why was that? I think I've always had a, a desire to campaign and I've always had a desire to try, maybe it's that social conscious being brought up in my at home. I, I, we didn't discuss, my my father's a priest. So, you know, we had a, a, a massive social conscious, always wanted to try and improve other people's circumstances. So a job came up to campaign for 
age concern. I just, I just went for it. I just wanted to do something that had had an impact, and it just sort of flowed from there. There was no great ambition to enter into politics, but slowly you started interacting with parliamentarians, and you begin to have a better understanding how policy is formulated. You know how budgets are constructed and how they have an impact on people like people's lives on the ground, and that sort of just then fed me through on this journey where I ended up, you know, many years later, putting myself forward as a as a Conservative candidate for Wilton. And what was that process like, putting yourself forward as a candidate? You were in an open primary, which is a little bit different than the probably the, the conventional, the traditional way that candidates are selected. Yeah. So I've always voted Conservative. And sort of always sort of helped out every now and then. And I met some really, you know, fantastic female parliamentarians and was out and about leafleting for them. And they were sort of encouraging, encouraging, put your name forward to do that extra stage to try and get onto the candidates list. And I had no concept what this was, Katie. This is the bizarre thing. When you're not from that world, it's all kind of like, what is this process? How do you do it? So I just put my name forward. And so when Wilden came up in 2013... I went through the process, but with no expectation I'd ever get through because I assumed that they'd probably want a particular kind of candidate. But I kept getting through every interview process. So when the open primary came, it's very Wilden. Anyone that paid council tax in the area could come along. And we have a, a golfing hotel where everything seems to happen. So we, the final interview was turning up when there were 400 people in, 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 in the hotel and they could just vote on their preferred candidate. And it has a, it's a very strong Conservative seat. So lots of Conservative members are there. And they'd obviously interviewed us through every stage. So you're basically, you know, on a stage, just answering questions, trying to, trying to look at the feedback you're getting from the audience. It's very, very peculiar. But, but I didn't know anybody, apart from my married surname being Wilden, and the seat being called Wilden. <laughs> There wasn't any other familial link. So when I entered the room where the 400 people were sitting and before I walked onto the stage, I thought, I'm probably the last person I'm going to vote for. So I'm just going to have a fantastic time. So I just walked in and chatted to people on my way to the stage and shook hands and said hi. And so by the time I got to the stage, it was already buzzing. I think people thought, oh my God, what's happening? Maybe she knows lots of people. And I just gave the best representation of myself but I wanted the people in the audience to enjoy that half an hour with me and to know who I am what kind of conservative I am what kind of MP I would be and then I thought I'd leave it and then I ended up getting selected which was and we did not expect how did you celebrate or do you then have the panic you know you you say you didn't have much of an initial link and so we're moving (laughs) Well, the biz- no, the, no. Bizarre thing is that we, my husband's family, didn't grow up too far from here, and and the seat we'd had, you know, we had many months to organise ourselves. So I'd spent a lot of time speaking to local people, and I knew a lot about the area, but I didn't expect to win that night. I didn't pack an overnight bag, Katie. I expected to it to be end. And and the MP at the time, <clears throat> Charles Hendry and his wife Sally, who are just fantastic, they just had to scoop us up and take us home. We were in shock. It was the first time I've, I've actually been in shock because I couldn't sleep that night. I've never had that feeling of shock before. And Sally, she had to give me her hairbrush the next day and she was saying, you've got to, there's going to be some, the local press wanted to get hold of you and the local police wanted to have a chat with you and all X, Y and Z. But it was kind of a blur and, and Charles and Sally Hendry just had to sort us out. And, and so and they've been, they've been absolutely fantastic ever since. 
But look, it's, it's, if people don't know where Wilden is, it's in East Sussex. It's incredibly rural, very farming, and every village has its own vibe. But this is a crazy thing, Katie. It reminds me of Kashmir. And I know it's and for me because it's the same kind of community spirit. It's very independent. I was with some farmers just last night with some cattle. It just reminds me of Kashmir. It's the most peculiar thing. So for me, it's like we've done a whole circle. Having left, and I'm back here. Um, and our mobile phones don't work. The, uh, the, the phone coverage is so awful, just like Kashmir. There you go. <laughs> Nothing changes. But look, I'm, I'm chuffed and it's, it's been an experience because politics has changed so much in the last five or six years. Yeah, so you entered Parliament in 2015, and in a way, uh, you have, I think 2015 is just around the time people start saying politics is not usually like this, <laughs> and never stop saying it for uh, basically up until now and probably onwards. Um, but you have the brief period of calm where the, the Tories have won a surprise majority, David Cameron is in charge, uh, you have many Tory colleagues, and then obviously we have a referendum, you came out for leave, throws everything on its head, we have Theresa May, I'm almost skipping because listeners are very well aware of the timeline here, but I think obviously as an MP all of a sudden you have a snap election, and you're in a hung parliament, everything's really fractious, and quite different I think probably than what politics looked like it was going to be as a career in 2015 how do do you cope with that switch did you feel as though the mood in parliament was changing a lot over those few years it it did change a lot I mean I think the referendum you know exactly what was happening in in the country was then reflected in parliament and then the slap election and the and the result meant that you know every vote was on a a knife edge and I was a minister at the time of um, and also in the whip's office but I had some tricky portfolios and trying to get votes through. I and mean, I handled the HS2 brief, for example, and trying to manage the votes on that in uh, a parliament with the numbers that we had stacked against us on tricky issues was incredibly difficult to do. And also, I think the after effects of Brexit and the mood. So we had that. And then we had another election with a, a phenomenal result. But I would say that coming back after every election has been a very different vibe in parliament. And normally you'd have four or five years before the next parliament and new vibe, it's just had to come together in very short periods of time. I think what I find most exciting about the new makeup, especially of our party, the people that are in office now come from such different backgrounds, which means that we're just going to have healthier policy, healthier debate. And I can I can see myself more and more in the party as every election has happened. It just feels you know, more working class, as it were. We have many more women now. Just people with different jobs that they've they've had, they can bring that to the house. So it's getting more and more dynamic. And it's not the word diverse I want to use. We just have more people with different experiences, which is exactly what we need as a country as we transition, you know, away from Brussels and try and find our own feet. Now, I want to talk about your uh, work from the back benches, but just before we do, you mentioned your work, you know, within government and obviously as, as a transport minister. If we look at Boris Boris Johnson in our fast forwarding of, t- of the timeline becomes prime minister in 2020, he has a reshuffle and you're one of the ministers who's let go of. And I just wanted to at that point, it was seen as a surprise. Quite a lot of people seemed surprised by that. There was talk that you might be the, I think, probably what would be quite a doomed or quite tricky job, HS2 minister. But can you talk us through what happened there? Did you get a phone call from the prime minister saying your services were no longer needed? And how did you take that? 
Yes, I mean, the, 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 yeah, it's, it's within the Prime Minister's gift to choose who he wishes to serve in his his government. The Prime Minister called and said that my services were no longer needed, and that's, you know, that's for the Prime Minister to decide. Yeah, that, that was that. It feels like a year ago. But I think what I've achieved in the last year on the back benches is no different to everything I achieved on the front benches. But look, as you as you touch on, you've been incredibly busy on the back benches. I suppose what I was interested in is politics is incredibly unpredictable, but there's a lot of uh, often people see the ministerial ladder as, as the as the one that people focus on the most. So therefore you know, not making it into cabinet or, you know, losing your job as a, as a minister. These things can happen for so many reasons outside of anyone's control. But it can obviously feel a bit like a career setback for some people. Um, you wonder if you should spend the next year trying to almost not quite be a suck-up, would say, but, you know, being a really well-behaved, uh, you know, go- with the government every time and hoping to get back in that way. Whereas instead, what you've done is, uh, it seems, you know, taking some causes you really care about and not really worried if that gives the government a massive headache. So you're asking me whether I'm a good girl or a bad girl. If I was a good girl, Kate, I wouldn't be here speaking to you. I would have been married at 14. So I'd, you're right. I, I just, I'd never expected to be an MP, Katie, too. And then to have been lucky enough to be a minister and also held a fantastic ministerial brief. It came and it went. But it's politics. And I cannot explain to you when how extraordinary it is that I'm actually an MP. What I wasn't going to do was do nothing. And for me, there are a couple of things I've always wanted to tackle. The Uyghur issue I dipped into before I was a minister. And I think what really angered me is I was a minister for two years. And when I came back, nothing had changed. And, and you would have noticed that, you know, as when I was a minister, if I could do anything, I would. Just keep things going, moving at a pace. And I thought, I can't now... I can't believe nothing has changed. So what can we do that's actually productive? And this changes not only the discourse, but actually the circumstances for the weaker people. I was just tired of the hand-wringing. I was tired of uh, of this acceptance that the international institutions were broken, so I was just going to crack on. I had no time, Katie. I thought I just, I'm no longer a minister. I'm a member of parliament. I've got to take care of Wilden. And there's a couple of things internationally that we need to try and think about now and resolve. And I also think as a backbencher at the moment, we've had so many of our ministers have been so busy with COVID and all MPs have because we've had to deal with so much casework. But it also meant that I had space to get on and do this, actually. And when people talk about the trade bill being in the House a couple of months ago, you know, I, with a number of other colleagues, and Smith in, in particular, we've been working on this for a whole year. So we had everything ready to go when we, when we knew that we, the timing was right. And I think that's the experience being a minister gave me. I knew how the WIPs office functioned, so we, I understood how, what we needed to do to try and make sure that we had good support. I knew as a minister how departments functioned I, and, and how we'd have to try and negotiate compromises with number 10. So all of that experience meant that we could actually move the debate on so much when it came to, to Uyghur and the Trade Bill. But... Katie, I wasn't going to waste my time. I'm incredibly lucky 
to be on the green benches and it has it does have a small amount of power attached to it I wasn't going to let that go I was going to crack on as we've as we've been discussing it's your work when it comes to what's been happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghur Muslims there's a genocide amendment uh, which you were instrumental in in the House of Commons and ultimately pushing the government to take a tougher stance on some of these things and part of the consequence of the fact that you have been effective and vocal is what I mentioned in that introduction which was the news I think we'll say telling this is going out recently that ultimately the Chinese government was sanctioning nine individuals within the UK and you were one of a handful of MPs that they have they have singled out were you surprised and how did you find out that you had been sanctioned I, I was surprised because I knew that when the government our government sanctioned Chinese officials were being complicit in gross human rights abuses we were sort of assuming that somehow the Chinese Communist Party would would retaliate, but I thought they would retaliate at an official level, at an executive level. I didn't think they would go for backbench MPs. So, so in, in that way, it was it was a surprise, and also to be sanctioned, not for being a war criminal or being complicit in a humanitarian crisis or gross human rights abuses, but to be sanctioned for raising awareness. <laughs> of human rights abuses is, is sort of absurd. Tim Loughton is an, a sort of a neighbouring MP. He's over in West Worthing and was incredibly um, um, instrumental on the genocide amendment. He sent me a message and I was woken up at three, my phone was buzzing and I don't normally have my phone on a buzz, but we've, we've had a number of COVID deaths in the family. So I had my phone on and I woke up at three and I, I, one of the messages was Tim Loughton's message saying, have you seen the sanctions list? And I just thought, well, I assume then that one of the ministers might have been sanctioned or Seren, Duncan Smith might have been sanctioned. And it wasn't until I read the dozens and dozens of messages that it dawned on me that my name was out there. For a moment, it was sort of, what does it mean? But then I thought, we've obviously hit a nerve. And... And I suppose my my gut feeling was that everything much must be so much worse in Xinjiang than we can imagine, because if they won't even let us talk about what we know and what they were prepared to share with us. So this is the Chinese Communist Party originally putting out pictures of, you know, the, uh, the re-education centres and saying that these children needed uh, education without realising that actually what they were basically establishing was the removal of hundreds of thousands of Uyghur children from Uyghur parents to break that lock between parent and child because they did not want the Uyghur children to have uh, any identity when it came to their culture and their faith and their language. When the Chinese Communist Party would tweet and promote the freedoms of women by saying they no longer have to have children, they they are now free to be economically independent, and at the same time saying there's been a birth rate drop for for the for, for Uyghur by eighty four percent, and and that is down to the forced sterilization of women, and they they didn't realize how we'd take that in the West, and 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 the two million people in prison camps, um, that they were prepared to originally show on satellite images, but are now denying that they exist, and I thought if we think that's horrific, it must be so much worse for for Uyghur people, and I think I said in my last in the last genocide debate, that the handmaid's tale must be a fairy tale for, for Uyghur women. Because your husband can be removed, your children can be removed, you can be put, you know, you can have evasive treatment and be forcibly sterilised. Um, the amount of technology that's used in Xinjiang means that everyone's movements are monitored. 
It is the most technologically advanced mass abuse of human rights taking place. So I just felt, instead of being intimidated or feeling threatened or being cautious, I, I would use my right as an elected MP to continue talking about this and um, and do everything I can to try and expose what's happening to the weaker people. And Katie, people might ask, well, what's it got to do with us? Well, it's got a lot to do with us because these prison camps, what is produced in these prison camps ends up you know, in, in supply chains and ends up on our shelves here. So it's not an isolated mass abuse of human rights. We are in, We are involved because we're involved in the end product at some point. Um, so I just felt even more determined to, to talk about it. And I think what maybe what the Chinese Communist Party doesn't quite understand is how we work in the West, that they thought they were closing a debate down, but actually they opened it up. Katie, everybody wants to know why we'd been sanctioned, which meant that we spent, uh, you know, a couple of days talking about Xinjiang, talking about the Uyghur. For my other colleagues that have been sanctioned, they could talk about Hong Kong, they could talk about Tibet. And also I was able to talk about how... The, this is a, a gross miscalculation by the Chinese Communist Party. And, but we also need to be wary in Western democracies how we protect our institutions so we can continue to function as elected MPs and not be concerned about foreign interference. Now, I'm just going to ask two quick questions to end the podcast. I wondered, Boris Johnson has spoken out and offered his support to all nine of those who have faced sanctions in the UK. Do you think that uh, we are going to see a, a further toughening of the UK response to China as a result of this. We recently had the integrated review. Um, I, I think so. I think this. I think the sanctions were a moment that the Chinese Communist Party weren't expecting. I'm so pleased that the Prime Minister came out. You know, it was the next day we were able to catch up with him, and the Foreign Secretary statements got more and more powerful as the day unfolded. I think what's important is that we we keep saying there are gross human rights abuses. The, the outgoing Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration has declared it a genocide. We now need to basically fully accept, as we were were trying to establish in the Genocide Amendment, that the United Nations is broke when it comes to China and Russia. And there's no way the United Nations is going to investigate or even have access to investigate and determine what's happening in Xinjiang. So we need to do everything we can in our power to see what we can do to continue to collect the data investigate and if we have to then determine a genocide appropriately because it then unravels a number of other obligations. I think we need to have further sanctions on senior Chinese officials who are complicit in Xinjiang. I believe we need to work with our partners primarily with America in trying to put together an alternative to the aggressive infrastructure fund that the Chinese Communist Party makes available through their Belt and Road Initiative and therefore silences any criticism from other countries around the world. And we also need to be steadfast, steadfast in upholding our values as democratic societies and not giving an inch away, because I think this is a start of something that, you know, unless we're working with our partners, we are going to be in a very bad place in about a decade's time if we haven't haven't upheld our institutions in our own national countries, let alone try to have, you know, try and work collectively with other Western democracies and say, what more can we do to ensure that broken international institutions reflect who we are and what we aspire the world to be? So there's a lot more work to be done. Now, my final question is one that we ask everyone in this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given may relate to this? 
Katie, the worst advice I've ever been given. I think it all stems from people being afraid. Don't go to school. Don't go to college. Don't marry out of your community. Don't enter politics. Don't become a Conservative MP. Don't talk about the Uyghur. Where do I start? It's always the don'ts, but I've never been very good with the don'ts because my, my response always been, but how can we turn this into a how? And why not? But it's all down to other people's fears, I suspect, and control. And if I'd listened to any of that advice, I would, wouldn't be here. Although my family would have said, well, you wouldn't be sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party. Or my brothers would say you wouldn't be a Tory MP. So maybe there's something in it. Thank you, Nurse. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, why not subscribe? You can find all the episodes if you just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And that will also lead you to the iTunes store, where if you really like it, you could leave a review. And they include interviews with Andrea Ledsom, Emma Barnett and Sarah Baxter of The Sunday Times. And we also have an offer you may have heard of if you've ever listened to a Spectator podcast before. And that is 12 issues for £12 along with a £20 John Lewis voucher, which is also valid in the supermarket Waitrose. Uh, Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. 